This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Hey everybody, this is Rev Yearwood, and welcome back to the show. I, we have we have a, a great conversation for you today. Today I am with Neil Leiden. Neil, how are you doing today? Rev, what's up? I'm doing good. Just enjoying pretty much the Labor Day weather. It's a holiday here in the Bahamas, so it's a nice rainy holiday. Chill. It's it's a holiday in the Bahamas. It's a long weekend. Now, you can't. You can't, Neil. Hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You can't come on the show, showing off, saying it's a holiday in the Bahamas. You know, people listen to the show in the middle of their basement somewhere in Baltimore. <laughs> you talk about the shout out to Baltimore. I just came back from Baltimore. Actually, there it is. Okay, there you go. Okay, uh, uh, what was you uh, doing in Baltimore? My younger sister, she just graduated with a master's from Hopkins, so I was there too. Show some support. Oh, and check out yeah, the city. See my cousin up. actually went to John Hopkins. Yeah, that's a good shout out. Shout out to John Hopkins. Shout out to your sister. Congratulations to the family. I, I will let yeah, did, did you did, did you enjoy Baltimore? I did. It's a very interesting city compared to other places I've been. Um, Baltimore is interesting because um, there's a lot of things within walking distance. So my sister was like, "Oh, we can just walk in." I'm like, "How how far is it?" And she was like, "Oh, it's in walking distance." Um, what I've come to understand is that walking distance means something different for people living on the island versus people living in cities. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, listen, you got to ask that question. Like, if you go down south and sit down south here, it's like, you know, talking about like Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana, and you say it's like, we're going to walk to the store. Yo, you could be almost like a whole other state. Like, you <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, yo, wait a minute. How are we in, like, Georgia now? What's with the right. You know what I mean? Listen, I, I, I had dinner. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I had yeah. dinner, and then I needed something after dinner. I was like, wow. That was a great dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday. <Yeah. laughs> oh, man. Well, you've already talked about how you're from the Bahamas. So, But for folks who don't know, who is Neil Leiden? So, uh, Neil Leiden is... He's... Um, He's an amalgamation of so many things that make the Caribbean great, that make black people great. So first of all, Neil is, he's a son, he is a, he's a brother, he's a, he's a family man. He is someone who, who shows up for his people in his community in every way that they need him to be. And most importantly, Neil is someone who's always there for good vibes. He's there to, to change the narrative. Neil is somebody who is always thinking about ways to improve the situation that I found myself in or to spark some kind of joy, some kind of creativity, some kind of inspiration in someone else's life. And then Neil, someone who likes to have a good time as well. So I'm, I'm always existing. I always tell people I exist at the intersection of pop culture and science. So um, it's, it's an interesting thing because you, it's very much champagne lifestyle on a lemonade budget at this point, but we we can make it work. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So before I ask you who is your community, I actually want to know, like, so if 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 we and me, me we meaning like the producers of this show, 
Um, we all come to the Bahamas. I'm just putting the plug there to you, Neil. We're just trying to, you know, <laughs> we to let you know where we got to come down there for something. But we come down there. What are we going to eat? Like, like what, what's, what's like the meal that you're going to make sure that we get? Like, what's going to be the Bahamian meal? Like, y'all got to eat this. You know, um, the Bahamas is universally renowned for seafood. And so mm-hmm. I would have to say, I would, I would take you guys to the fresh fry, get you some kong salad, get you some kong fritters, get you some really, really good seafood. I think that's the thing mm-hmm. that's going to bring it fully to a Bahamian experience, experience. So you could have your seafood. And then the Bahamas is also really, really known for a very interesting take on a lot of traditionally Caribbean food as well. Things like um, baked macaroni dishes, which is very different from the American mac and cheese. I know some of my American friends that it's it's a baked dish, first of all, and it has everything from, of course, the, the macaroni, of course, is there. And then there's cheese and then there are greens. And then there is also... Um, Lots of flavoring, lots of seasonings, like egg, heavy cream. So it, it's a very hearty dish. Mm. Well, you know, you know, I, I, I'm sold. You know, ain't <laughs> <laughs> much more than that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, awesome. So you should know that my yeah yeah. So my I well, I was born here uh, in the states. I was born in Louisiana, and I repped that hard. Shout out to my Louisiana community and family. My, my parents. Yeah, my parents are both from the island of Trinidad and Tobago. So I have strong, because of that, West Indian roots. And so it was funny growing up, and I'm sure you know this, I'm sure you have plenty of family like, who, who, who are like me, who cousins and other folks who literally, you know, everybody was born in the Bahamas, but then they, you know, they were born in like Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> like that. Yes, yes. Uh, so for me, it was that way. So I, I, I relate to that. And it was funny because I had to, um, my community was different, right? Because on the one hand, I was clearly growing up within the black experience. At the same time, I clearly understood the West Indian experience. Like I understood the clothing, the food, um, responsibilities. Um, and it helped shape me, right? It helped shape me a lot. Yeah. So thinking of that, who who is who who is who is your community um in that regard? You know, it's it's so interesting that you say that because being able to tap into that duality of being African American and also West Indian, it's a huge superpower because we exist in the same reality, we exist in the same multiverse, but we also exist on two separate timelines when it comes to mm. social issues, when it comes to race issues when it comes to cuisine when it comes to family interactions we exist on two different planes entirely but at its root the issues the love the community the the way forward it's all the same and so i feel very confident in saying that my community is first and foremost the black community the african community the african-american community the west indian community and i say that because that's always been my existence that's always been such a, a central part of every piece of work that I've ever written, every interview, every single event. And so that's my community. But at the same time, my community is also the, the first children, the, the first kids of families, everyone who had to be the example child. That's also my community because I have five younger siblings and it, it also shapes so much of my perspective in terms of being a community leader. 
my youngest sibling is quite a number of years younger than I am. And so to see him as a kid in grade school and um, know that at some point in the future, the work that I'm doing now is going to come up and it's going to be something that I would like to be an impact on him positively. That, that makes my community so, so special and so important to me. But also my community is the creative community, individuals who are in multimedia, individuals who have something to say, individuals who are interested in creating a platform for others like them, people that, that experience life in the way that they do. And even those that don't, you know, because that's important to have that foundational work at the end of the day. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Speak about the movement. What's uh-huh. your role um, in this movement, in this fight? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that I exist at the intersection of pop culture and science. So just for a bit of background, I went to the University of the Bahamas and I, I studied biology with chemistry. And entirely, my, my focus since day one was medicine, medical school. And so that was always just in front of me. And so when I was a senior, I decided at the very last minute that I wanted to pivot and, and go into environment. And everyone thought I was crazy. Of course, being someone with Caribbean heritage, you know that you have to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an engineer, or else why did you go to college? Like, why did you go to university? That's, that's the way that Caribbean communities are, because those are the big three or four jobs within the region. And so I found my place very shakily, I, I'd have to say, because I started just on Instagram. Because I live in the Bahamas, I'm so fortunate to have access to natural resources every single day. And so I started a series where I would just go out, photograph animals, uh, sea stars, stingrays, sharks, turtles, different kinds of plants, frangipani, yellow elder, um, different landmarks. And I would just give information on it. And people responded so well to that. And before I know it, I had a, a bit of a following of people that were just so invested. And um, so my role slowly more from just general education, citizen science. And then it kind of took a step in the direction of activism. And that started with a very special project called Sail for Climate Action. And that project was, well, still is ongoing, just in a new form. But for that aspect of the project, that was a sailing journey that was aimed to bring together youth activists, environmental defenders, community organizers, from Latin America and the Caribbean. And so we all met up in Cartagena, Colombia. And mm. when we got there, we, we had brainstorming sessions, capacity building or organizing meetings, things like that. And the next big thing was for us to sail from Colombia and we were going to sail to COP. And that was supposed to be a four-month journey that was unfortunately cut short due to the pandemic beginning in March of 2020. So. That's how I got into the advocacy space. And so now I, I presently exist in that realm as an uh, environmental advocate, environmental justice advocate, um, of course, racial advocate. And so what that has done for me is it's opened me up to a network of incredible leaders, incredible organizers. And so now I exist in this realm where I still enjoy the creative aspect of it. I still do freelance photography. I still write. I actually write for Shadow Magazine. And so that magazine kind of keeps me in a space where I'm writing, but I'm still informing. I'm organizing, but I'm still on the front lines. And so um, I'm very grateful for, for this, this kind of uh, really nuanced space that I find myself in. 
No, man, I, 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 I so love that. Talk about, I mean, one, I love boats. Um, and <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know how to sail though. I, I, I will tell you, I know that, I know that it is, it is a whole, how, how did you get into that? I mean, I know people just would think, well, he, you're just in the Caribbean, you're on an island. No, that's not how, there's a lot of folks on the island who don't, who don't have, who don't go out to boats and don't do that. But, I, but talk about that. I mean, how did you get into that? So, um, yeah, happily. So I have a friend who he works for the Ministry of Tourism here, but he is also an organizer. We're actually working together at this present moment to organize a regional conference of youth. And so we're going to have this conference where it's going to be hosted in the Bahamas this summer. And we're going to bring together activists, advocates, organizers, environmental defenders from throughout the Caribbean. We're talking Trinidad and Tobago, Angola, um, Montserrat, Cayman Islands, Jamaica, St. Lucia, as well as delegates from the African continent. So we're working really ambitiously to do this. And, and I think it's going to be an incredible amount of work. So shout out to Turan and the work that he's doing. But he was the introduction to Seal for Climate Action because of his um, connections to the environmental space and having been to COP several times before I got there last year. He ended up with me 2020, having lunch, casual lunch. So this is January, I think the 13th. And he's like, so um, Neil, what are you doing um, for the next four months starting in, in February? So I said, wow, I don't, I don't know. So he was like, do you want to go on a sailing journey? So I say, yeah, of course. <laughs> Neil's always down to party. Neil's always down to travel. <laughs> and and this, this, so you know, Neil, Ravage too. So let's listen next, next time. You, you know what? We're going to talk about it. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so I, I really had no idea what I was getting into. I just knew that um, it sounded like a good time. I knew that the project was something that I honestly cared about. And so that day was the deadline. He was like, well, you have six hours to fill out this application. I filled it out. I was accepted to it. And then the following month, I flew to Colombia to begin this project. And so that was my official, official introduction to, to like group working and group mm -hmm. dynamics with people outside of my region. And that project, I'm talking, we had, I think, about 36 individuals on that, that sailing vessel. And we represented about 30 countries. And so mm. there was this mix of languages. There was English, Spanish, there was Dutch, there was French. Um, uh, there was a community of women that were from the Amazon. They were from an indigenous community. And so they had their own indigenous languages that they spoke. So there became such this, uh, I guess, microcosm of, of what it is to exist in the real climate space, where you have individuals who we all know have very important things to say. But then you start to draw those fine lines. And, you know, I talk about deforestation in a very tropical sense. I'm talking about mangrove deforestation. I'm talking about tropical pine forests. I'm talking about um, coppice in the Bahamas. And then I have friends in the Amazon, and they're talking about trees that are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old that are being uprooted. Mm -hmm. They're talking about losing their land. They're talking about food scarcity. They're talking about water quality and, and soil, soil acidity. And I'm just here like... This is all happening at the same time that I'm losing coral reefs, I'm losing mangroves, I am losing beachfront, uh, our country's being ravished by hurricanes. And it, it just, it was mind-blowing because these are happening in tandem. These aren't issues that, like, we put a cap on and then say, it's your turn, Bahamas, it's your turn, Amazon, your turn, Brazil. These are happening simultaneously. 
And so that project, while it was my introduction to active working in the space, it was my introduction to what should be a very obvious reality. Wow. Wow. But for, for, for those who don't know, t- tell them what is happening in the Bahamas in regards to, obviously, the climate crisis and or w- w- other things, to be honest. I mean, all, where we, we live in an intersectional you know, world and movement. So how, how those things get, but what, what are the issues and challenges that you are, you are facing? So the issues and challenges that are more prominent, more pressing in the Bahamas are definitely a mixture between social issues as well as the environmental issues that have brought me to this place in my career. Uh, I always tell people that the Bahamas is one of those countries that gets a bit of an over-glorified reputation in terms of our place in the world. And I, I say that with the most love because I think that it's, it's done us a huge disservice. I always tell people that for all of the glamour, all of the luxury, all of the sun, sand, and sea that you see in the Bahamas, people take for granted that we are still a third world nation. Mm. We're still not industrialized. There is still no such thing as, as um, major infrastructure here in terms of factories, in terms of solar power, in terms of wind energy, hydroelectric, whatever you want to call it. So uh, there's a running joke that myself and other Bahamians have that the Bahamas is a third world country in the Gucci belt. And like, you can't fall for the hype all the time because we still need your help. Like we, we still need people to, to rally behind us and support us. And it, it's been because of that, that uh, I think that I've been able to keep a clear mindset in terms of the issues. When we're talking about issues that the Bahamas faces, for, for instance, we're talking about uh, hurricanes. June started the hurricane season, so we're three days in officially. And this weekend, we already have our first tropical storm of the season coming this way. And so this is a direct testament to climate change and to the changes that the planet has been undergoing for the last few decades at a, I guess, more intensifying pace. Uh, so besides climate change as a broad phenomenon, we have more, I guess, streamlined issues like losing the biodiversity that we've become so famous for. Coral reefs have been bleached and dying. Uh, the huge phenomenon right now in terms of that is the stone coral tissue loss disease that's wreaking havoc within the region. Um, because of changing ocean demographics as well, we have things like the lionfish becoming invasive species here. They're not native mm-hmm. to the region. And because of that, there is no real active predator here, you know, to to kind of curb that. Um, Of course, there are ways that people can get involved to curb the lionfish invasion. Things like um, lionfish derbies where restaurants have seasons where lionfish replaces a lot of things on the menu. So things like mahi-mahi tacos, they become lionfish tacos. Things like pooper fingers become lionfish fingers. And so that's a very clever and also sustainable way to assist in that regard. Another issue that we have in the Bahamas also comes in the form of overdevelopment. Like I said, that um, people take for granted that this is still a third world nation. There is still a very delicate relationship and a very, very important symbiosis between us and the environment here. It's not always honored. Tourism is the number one industry of the Bahamas. It makes up a huge amount of our gross domestic product. And it didn't really dawn on a lot of people how dangerous that was until the pandemic, until Mm. there wasn't a hotel to go to. And as someone who works 
within that sector myself in my regular life, I was home for an entire year because there was no international travel. And so that opened up the conversation to a place where we now have to decide how important is it for us to diversify our offerings and not just become people that, that produce amazing experiences, amazing getaways, amazing cuisine, and leave ourselves at a disadvantage in the long run. Another issue that I think needs to be brought up in this space is also what I've experienced personally and its lack of opportunities for individuals like myself in this field of interest. It's very hard to break into because I feel as though because we're surrounded in this, this beautiful environment just about every single day, minus one or two rain days, I think that people don't realize how much the landscape has changed. Mm. I once did an interview where I spoke about a very, very amazing beach that I went to as a kid with my family. And that beach is no longer there. I mean, the spot is there, but there's no more sand. It's, it's all just rock, all just uh, debris. And now where there once was oceanfront and shoreline and, and sand and sandcastles and children, there is now a very rocky terrain and waves now go straight up to the road and drive straight through it and break a wave with your car. And that's something that, that's, that's absolutely terrifying. And so those are some of the issues that just immediately come to my mind. You know, you're, you're very articulate and on these uh, issues in regards to how it affects the Bahamas. And thank you for that. I mean, I, um, in, and I know firsthand as well, my, my uncle, um, may he rest in power, uh, Dr. Rupert Griffith was the minister of tourism, also was the speaker of the house in Trinidad and, to, and Tobago. And he would talk about different ways of, of how the, um, we could almost have like a climate tourism. Um, is that talked about at all in the Bahamas about how, you know, some of these things can be, can be, can be looked at as a way to, to bring people to the country, but in a way that also helps to build up the country. Um, yeah. So there are some very clever initiatives that have come about in the last few years. There's now definitely a greater, more, I would say, people-centered approach to environmentalism in the Bahamas now. So I think one of the best examples that I can talk about from a grassroots level is now world-famous swimming pigs that the Bahamas has. And so these pigs, they are literally wild pigs, the same way you find wild pigs in Louisiana, the same way you find wild pigs in a variety of different Caribbean nations. These pigs have just become famous because they, they swim on this key. And so locals have started doing charter tours and having guests come and feed these animals. And um, that's a very small example of how that's taken place. A larger example would be one of the resorts here, which I work for. Um, there is a foundation and they organize cleanups for the beaches, for communities, for parks. They organize mural paintings and restoration efforts and, and plant giveaways and uh, mangrove planting initiatives. So there is both ends of the spectrum. I think the problem in my humble perspective is that you're either doing it for yourself or you're doing it on a very large scale. And I kind of want us, uh, I want us to come to a place where we kind of just zoom in a bit and we come to that happy medium where the community is now engaged 
and it's more about us, less about me as a, an individual doing charters, and less about multi-billion dollar corporations, but about us in the middle, everyone that's really being affected in real time. And so um, while there is a small community of efforts, we do have the Bahamas National Trust, we do have organizations like Bahamas Plastic Movement, like Grief, uh, organizations that are dedicated to this work, I've definitely existed long enough, which is not very long at all, to know that we could be doing more and we have done more. Hmm. So Neil, the, the, know this, when I, when I come to the Bahamas and you put together you are the schedule, coming. I am, no, that's facts. And, and I know that our producers are saying they probably come in too. So that's probably going to probably be probably going to have to share one seat on the, on the plane. <laughs> We're going to get there. We're going to get there. But I will say this for me. I mean, I don't know about for Cross or Destiny or tomorrow, but I'm going to pass on the on the pig swimming thing. I'm, I'm going to pass on that. I'm going to let, I'm going to let that one go. I mean, I, I, I'm, I wish them all the best <laughs> in there in pushing for, but I, I got a thing, uh, with swimming with pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I got enough of that problem here in America. So I'm going to let that one, I'm going to let that one go. <laughs> I caught you. I've never yeah. done it, but I, I feel you entirely. <laughs> I, I feel like we connect uh, on a on a different level. I think we want to go and yeah. eat food and, and and sit to the bar and and, and go to cool events. I this, think that's what we want to that's, do. That's that yeah. This but all, all that on the schedule works fine. Like, you know we gonna no, we gonna let's do. do it. Yeah, I, I'm curious. You know, being from the Caribbean, um, and obviously, how does things like movement for Black Lives actually hits you, um, <laughs> and I know here in the States, a lot of times, we're going to have some real talk here. And, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of folks in the Caribbean who come over sometimes don't connect. And there's a lot of folks who are here who are, you know, black Americans who get upset because they feel like people come from the Caribbean and they benefit. They come over, they go to, you know, good schools. They go from Howard to Hampton to wherever they're going to go to school at. And they don't connect. Some do. We we actually have the Eric Williams, you know, uh, caucus who who definitely connects with folks. But a lot of them don't. How 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 does Room for Black Lives hits you? And 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 do you understand sometimes why many and many Black Americans in this country um, are sometimes befuddled by how? folks in the Caribbean come over to the States and don't seem to join into the fight? Yeah, um, and I'm probably going to say something that's going to blow your mind. No, no, you go ahead and say it. Yeah, you know, let, but, um, let, let it rip. But they're, they're very well justified in, in that stance because I remember when the, the entire situation with the George Floyd uh, slaying and protests kicked off, and myself, other Bahamian activists, organizers, and even just people on social media, people on Twitter and Instagram, really, really hopped into that, that discourse. There was a, a very active audience of people locally saying that we were bandwagoning it, and it's an American issue. It's an issue that doesn't affect us. We don't have police brutality here. That's not a real thing. And uh, there, was, there was a very clear realization that, that dawned on me. 
I think that individuals were making this very incorrect correlation between us being a black populace and us having issues. They, they missed the, the connection there. They seem to understand that the George Floyd situation was heavily race motivated, yes, but they ignored the systemic version of events and, and what that means for individuals, regardless if you come from a primarily predominantly black state, if you come from a primarily white state, it's, it's a system that, that needs to be absolutely dismantled. And so to hear people say that we were bandwagoning, it confused me because the goal is never to become the oppressor, which I think they, they missed in saying that we have a black police force, we have a black commission of police. We don't have, we don't have that problem. We have that problem because you know, the prison industrial complex it exists outside of those parameters. It doesn't matter if, if I come from the Bahamas. If I go to the United States and I find myself on the wrong side of the law, none of this matters. <laughs> I mean, I, and it could get worse. I could end up in a deportation camp. And we've seen how those things play out with, with people of color, especially people that may be from queer communities, people that may be immigrants and, and children and women especially. So they missed that very important correlation. Um, for me personally, those protests, they played a huge amount of, I guess, um, not just anxiety, but, but it's kind of forced awareness because I think that I was so sheltered existing in a country where everyone's black. You see a white person in this country, they, they stand out, you know, and you won't be wrong to ask them if they're not from here. So, um, when people missed that, it, it was a sad moment for me because I feel as though they were being lured into this false sense of security. And for people that live so close to the United States and travel there so frequently, I think that people from the Caribbean region should be more invested in, in what happens in, in that. I will take this to another dimension now um, because these, all, these things all happen in one very linear timeline. I was doing the Sail for Climate Action Project during Black History Month 2020. And so there was myself and two other black guys on the ship. So we made up the entire black population, all three of us. The others were from Angola and the other was from Montserrat in the Caribbean. And we had this conversation, a very honest conversation about what it felt like sailing on this, this giant boat, doing this, what we jokingly called the reverse um, the slave trade we're doing the reverse uh, middle passage. Um, during Black History Month, we're in the belly of this boat, two weeks at sea between Jamaica and Colombia. And we're having this conversation about, we're doing something that we think is going to lead to the liberation of so many people within the region. And just a few hundred years earlier, this journey was taking place in reverse for the absolute reverse reasons. Um, so yeah, those issues that affect Black Americans will never be far removed from me. I will always ride for my Black American friends and followers because I know that we are just one boat stop away. There's so many things that, for instance, there are entire communities in South Carolina and South Florida that have a Bahamian ancestry. And not just like 10 or 20 Bahamians, I'm talking about entire communities. Um, they even share similar names. There's, there's Coconut Grove, Florida. There's Coconut Grove in the Bahamas. Flagler Street, um, or Sir Sidney Poitier. He was, of course, an amazing figure for Black 
people across the diaspora. So I, I just find it really discouraging when we get the split hairs because we do have police brutality here. It's just that the police look like me. And um, I don't know if that's comforting or discouraging because like I said, it's the system and it's the metrics of that system that leaves us disproportionately at a very, very poor, poor disadvantage. And um, it's never going to be an American issue, not for me. Mm. Leo, Aaron, I'm going to tell you, man, when you said that one bow stop away, that hit me to the core there, but I, 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 that was, yeah, that was, that was heavy. That was, that was heavy there. Um, you know, as you were talking, I'm thinking about how, you know, many Caribbean small island nations, such as Barbados and Jamaica, are severing ties, you know, with their colonial power. And in the case of Jamaica, they're demanding reparations. So tell us more about the Bahamas in the context of colonialism and reparations. Yeah, so the Bahamas is a very interesting relationship with the wider Caribbean. Um, on Twitter, there are always these, these diaspora wars that break out between different Caribbean islands in terms, sometimes they're very friendly in terms of like, what's the best food, the best accent, the best culture, cool things like that. But then when it comes to issues like colonization, um, and I'm just going to interject and say that in terms of the last thing we spoke about, which was racism, we don't have as big of a problem with racism in the Caribbean as much as there is a problem with colorism. So that's, that's a very interesting thing to note. Even individuals like myself and yourself, who both are black men, just slight variations in the hue of our skin tone make a huge difference in, in Caribbean countries, especially from a historical context. So that's a part of the diaspora wars that, that take place. And so um, the Bahamas being a, a nation that it has this proximity to the United States and this um, status of, well, first of all, in terms of dollar value, the U.S. dollar and the Bahamian dollar are interchangeable. And so that, that already sets us apart from the wider Caribbean in a very, very uh, crucial way. And so to be at this, this very strange position where we are kind of on par but not equal, in, in a sense, to um, what's going on in the U.S., I think that the Bahamas gets excluded from the conversation of reparations and colonialism because they say, oh, you guys are doing so well. You have a, a dollar value that's one-to-one -one with U.S. dollar. Um, tourism is booming in your country most of the time. Um, you're the number one vacation destination in the world. But that doesn't repair a broken history. You know what I'm saying? Mm. That, doesn't, that doesn't undo systems and, and the metrics that need to be undone. You know, there is still this understanding that um, there's, there's this, this, this idea that conversations regarding reparations are, are something that um, should be important. I just don't know how important people are taking them beyond the, the, the metrics of uh, what's going on in their individual lives, I think. I think that in places like Jamaica and Barbados, where the movement was so rapid and so it was met with such vigor, I think it's because people, they are actively advocating for a better existence for themselves and for their children. They want their dollar value to be increased. They want reparations because in many instances, their countries have been paying the crown for lost slaves for many, many years, which has probably just stopped within the last decade or so for some countries. And so 
I feel as though while the issues are understood by a lot of people in my environment, I think that the sense of urgency isn't met in the same way that it's met um, by people in Barbados or, or Jamaica. Now, I will say that last year there was this, this guy, he went to government house and there's this huge statue of Columbus and it's always been a landmark and it's always been a tourist uh, sightseeing point. And he took a sledgehammer and he destroyed a significant portion of that Columbus statue in the name of reparations, in the name of breaking colonial ties, in the name of liberation. And he was, you know, painted to be this lunatic that was defaming government property. And I think that regardless of his state, the message is the same. These aren't figures that should be celebrated in our region. They were never heroes. You know, they, they, were, they were colonists, they were abusers, they were, they were slave traders. And um, that's, that's what I, I really think is happening. I think that there's an understanding that these people are bad, but it only comes up uh, to, to its full potential when we talk about Charleston when we talk about Confederate flags, when we talk about uh, active racism, when we talk about white cops and, and, and black victims, when we talk about the Breonna Taylors, and when we talk about the Emmett Tills, and when, when we talk about the George Floyds and, and the Tamir Rices, and when we talk about Sandra Bland. Those are names that are very, very recognized in this country. But I think that when it comes to breaking the ties from the Queen, I think that there's a lot that people think we have benefited from, from the crown. That isn't entirely true. I, I think that there was benefit to us by means of us being a conduit for benefits for the crown. Yes, absolutely. You know, the grass waters absolutely more where you grow it. You know, it's growing, growing more where you water it, actually. And so for us, we were one of those places that the crown heavily, heavily poured into. You know, so... I mean, there's a certain level of pride and its historical relevance that comes along with it, but it's definitely time for us to move away from the crown and to start doing things that, you know, work in a way to repair so much of that damage. Right now, we are a sovereign state. We, we answer to the crown in terms of heavy, heavy issues, things like the death penalty, things like legalization of marijuana. Those are issues that may go before the crown via our governor general. So there's still a tier system, which means that it's not the queen making decisions on our part. However, I think in terms of symbolism and, and what that means, I think it's time to move away from that. Do you think, if, you think it's partly due to the fact that there are a number of older people who grew up a certain way in the Caribbean. I know if like my mom, my mom would tell me, I guess when she was a small girl, she was actually selected um, to when the queen um, went to Trinidad, she was selected to go out there, you know, and be one of the little, you know, they, everybody got dressed up. All this, all this sounds crazy to me now, right? I don't, it's I, not crazy. I don't even get it. It's not you know crazy. what I mean? It's, it happened three weeks ago. It happened a month ago when, um, when, when the prince was here. He was in Jamaica and he was met, he and his wife, they were met with such, and this is going to go back to what I just said about the difference between the outlook, the outlook in Jamaica versus the Bahamas. In Jamaica, there were protests and, and there were such uh, very notable outcries of opposition to the, the royal visit 
in honor of the Queen's Jubilee, which is actually ongoing at this present moment. Mm. And then in the Bahamas, you know, there was, there was some outcry with the Rastafarian community had a small protest, uh, individuals on Twitter, you know, complained a bit, but there was a huge amount of, of joy and, and pride and, and, and celebration regarding their visit. They were, they had a regatta, they, they ate the best seafood. They, they were kicking it and showing it and people interviewed by the evening news. Oh, we don't see a problem with it. Oh, we're supposed to love them. This is, this is our culture to be hospitable. Uh, we're still under the crown, we're part of the Commonwealth. And that's why I said that a lot of issues by proxy of our benefits of, of um, being from our colonial background and also being close to the United States, by proxy of, of our position, we've lost so much of that, that fire and that, that connection to the grassroots issues. I think it's, it's, very, um, it's very telling of, of what that means to the local population there. I don't think it's an issue for them um, in terms of colonization, in terms of historical uh, significance. Um, it's just not what it is, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So when they came here, it was, it was a grand celebration. And, and like I said, I think that there, there's a lot being lost in the conversation at the moment. Wow. Let's actually use that to talk about COP. Yeah. Shift that to the climate conversation. Because a lot of these things are connected, right? <laughs> a lot of these, a lot of these institutions, a lot of these, these legacies are intertwined. So, one for you, what did it mean to go to COP? Which we're saying COP is the climate, uh, the conference of the parties, which is the UN climate conference. Um, last year was was COP twenty six. Yeah, uh, we're approaching COP twenty seven in 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 Africa, Egypt. But 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 for you, you know, who was the struggle against? You know, why did you have to go to a global climate conference? And and were you part of a group demanding um, loss and damages? Yeah. So COP twenty six was my first COP, and it was incredibly overwhelming. It wasn't. It was I was there too. Experience. So you know, I was I was there. I was there, it was, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a lot going on. It was so much. I mean, there yeah. were, there were talks and panels and there was technology and there was food and there was uh, just so much going on. And it felt very, very, uh, very jarring to be there because I had so much that I wanted to say and so much that I wanted to do. I mean, and I did do a lot. I, I interviewed with BBC Radio 1, uh, the BBC uh, World News, as well as Sky News. And so I did have opportunities to get the messaging out there. I was with the group from Serve for Climate Action, actually. That's now morphed into Unite for Climate Action, which has onboarded so many more members from the wider Caribbean region, as well as Latin America, as well as a few spots in, in Europe and the UK. And so to be there with that group, it was interesting because there was a lot that took place that, uh, I guess... Um, wasn't something we could have planned for. I know that we expected to be different. You know, we're, we're going to a different place. We're going to to Glasgow, and we're, we're people of color. We're black. We're, we're indigenous. We're we're people that that look differently. Immediately, we sound differently. Immediately, some of us dress differently. Immediately, 
And so you stand out. And so what we weren't ready for was a part of the interest to be entirely cosmetic. Everybody wanted to have a photo op with the black and brown people with the crazy hair and, and their, their costumes, for lack of a better term. Um, and so it felt like we were being stripped of so much of what we wanted to do and accomplish. It felt like we were being used as props to a certain extent. And it made that experience very uncomfortable for some individuals, especially those who aren't native English speakers, because you now have to have a translator. And I, I've seen firsthand when the translator is thrown off, when the translator senses a microaggression or something that could be offensive, and they now have to relay that to you as the first voice that, that you understand saying something that's insensitive. I saw on my friends' faces what that, what that felt like. And so that was one of the most discouraging moments for a lot of us, the microaggressions, the, the overt and sometimes not overt racism that was to be experienced. And the fact that many people didn't get that they were being offensive or racist or insensitive or sexist, it, it definitely brought us to a place where we were like, wow, this is what we wanted. Like, this is, this is the leverage that we have been fighting for for the last two years. Like, this is really, like, we were planning to go to COP from some of us 2019 working and to get there finally in 2021 and to be reduced to this multiracial sideshow. It was, it, it felt really bad. And we had to have a few sessions where we had to unpack that as a group. Um, so that was, that was one of the things that really put a damper on the experience of COP. Uh, but one of the things that made it great was finding our people and then finding our tribe. I went to a party that was for the African diaspora. It said, everybody black, everybody African, show up. And that was something that <laughs> easily the top two parties I've ever been to in my life. And I'm not sure if it's even number two, to be very honest, because I met so many people from so many parts of uh, the African continent. Um, it's people that I'm still friends with people that I look forward to seeing in Egypt this year. Uh, and so what we found those pockets of community where my friends who were indigenous were able to meet with native Pacific Islanders or, or people from Vanuatu, people from Hawaii, people from other, other environments where they have indigenous populations that exist outside of our typical societal parameters. Those were the moments that made it worth it. I think that for everyone, some of the things that were our better, more defining moments centered around community. And, and we came to understand that much of this acclaim that we were chasing in terms of getting our message out there, it didn't matter because we got there and we became accessory to the fact. And, and that, was, that was very, very disheartening to a certain degree. Now, now you've led campaigns to stop oil drilling yes. in the Bahamas. Uh, Tell the audience about all the drilling in the in the Caribbean and its connections to Ukraine and the current Cold War. Yeah, so I led the campaign against oil drilling in the Bahamas um, toward the end of 2020, and I worked with uh, a few individuals that I'm friends with in the environmental movement, and that project was headlined um, by myself and those individuals, and it was facilitated by Sea Legacy as well as Only One, which are huge ocean conservation partners around the world. And so to be a part of that, it, it, was, it was something that was incredible because oil drilling is the last thing that we need in the Bahamas. 
because we find ourselves in such a very interesting place where we are battling climate change in real time, absolutely in real time. It's been pretty rainy the last couple of weeks in the Bahamas and flooding has become out of control. I was on Facebook this morning and there was a post of just license plates laid off on the table and this guy's like, if you lost a license plate in the last four or five days, you can check this police station to see if this may be like your license plate. And so wow. the water levels are definitely rising substantially with um, what's going on with the rain as well as just regular climate change. And so what that looks like in terms of the question of oil drilling, it looks like something like this. So um, oil drilling was slated to take place late 2021. If that had you know, gone completely berserk, resulting in an oil spill, that would have damaged this country's entire livelihood, which is tourism, which is optics, which is exports. We export way more seafood than this country actually consumes, like locally. Most of our exports go to South Florida or, or um, just that, that, that area of, of the Southern United States. And so it's, it's so crazy to imagine an oil spill taking that away from us because we know how fickle these industries are and we can be doing really good. The Bahamas in social studies class, we learn about the major industries historically and how they came to their demise. So one of the first major industries in the Bahamas was the sponging industry. People would go out diving, they would cut sea sponges out, clean them up, dry them out, and they would ship them to the United States. And they would mm -hmm. be used in industrialized um, factory, like just like those really lovely body sets that you get from Bath and Body Works or wherever. Um, those sponges, before they were synthetic, those were natural sponges. And what ended that industry was a disease that, that came and destroyed those, those animals, those sponges. After that, we had um, a moment where we had the pineapple industry, and pineapples were um, the main export for the Bahamas, and the Bahamas was the world's leader in pineapple exports. That was thwarted by um, United States government's colonization of the Hawaiian Islands. And so once the pineapples from the island of Luther and the Bahamas were introduced, they were um, propagated and, you know, dole opened their cannery and they were able to do things on a much larger professional scale than we were in the Bahamas. There was an embargo place where pineapples were super, super expensive to import from the Caribbean region, the Bahamas and surrounding islands. And so the industry died out. I'm saying the oil industry could do the same for us in terms of fisheries and, and tourism. We've already seen situations where the conch is in drastic decline. Countries like mm -hmm. Bermuda, Aruba, um, Haiti, Dominican Republic, South Florida, all have seen their conch populations decimated in the last half century. And my fear is that oil drilling can be the catalyst to offset something that's so delicate. Um, I, I have a huge fear of that. I'm not ready to tell my kids about what it was like to exist at a time when there was conch, or at a time where the Nassau grouper was in abundance, or a time when there were flamingos. Like, I don't I'm not mentally equipped and I don't want to be ever mentally equipped to deal with having to break that news to a generation, you know, not within like 70 years. Uh, come on. I think that sounds ridiculous. And so oil drilling, while the government and, and the investors painted it as something that's going to be so profitable, it never comes down to the, the small man, you know, 
it's never going to come down to them going into my community and taking 10 guys and, and employing them on an oil rig. No. People with expertise are going to be brought in and they're going to, they're going to work and then they're going to have jobs that are promised to contract workers from wherever they're from. So I, I didn't get the, the, the whole ruse of this is going to provide more jobs. I wasn't hearing it. So immediately my stance was no oil drilling because there are ways around this. There are, there are ways that we can have a positive impact on the environment and still provide jobs. You know, there's, there's so much more. So that campaign was something that was very, very near and dear to my heart for the four or five months that it was heavily, heavily active. Hmm. Yeah, I just want to thank you for this wonderful conversation. I just have one more question for you. Oh, of course. And um, I just really want to know, you talked a lot about COP and the climate movement. I just want to know, what is it like to be a beautiful Black, queer, Caribbean man in the climate movement? And what's the vision of the, what is, what's the story or the vision of the future you're fighting for? Paint us a picture. Yeah, so um, thank you so much. So what it's like to be Black, Caribbean, queer in this space, in a word, it's exhausting. It's, mm. it, it's very interesting because um, I find myself existing in a very, very strange um, waiting room, for lack of a better term, for the space that I'm in. So there are definitely seasons where I'm more popular. Pride season, super popular. Uh, February, Black History Month, also very popular. And um, there are times when everybody else is popular and everybody else uh, matters a whole lot more. And that's people that don't look like me, people that don't sound like me, people that don't come from communities that I come from. And there's a lot of co-opting of, of movements and, and cultures. And so to be someone that's endemically foreign to most of these spaces it's very confusing at times. And so um, I find myself having to show up and insist on being my authentic self because there are people that are benefiting monetarily from this that will want you in pieces. They will want your story in fragments. And while I do have the right to only talk about the good things, and I often choose to only speak about the good things, I will bring everyone with me to every meeting. So don't ask me to come and talk about uh, pride if I can't talk about environmental justice. And don't ask me to talk about environmental justice if I can't talk about the black community. And don't ask me to talk about the black community if I can't talk about the African continent or talk about the Caribbean diaspora. For me, these things, they are all interconnected. They are all intersectional issues. And so it's very hard because, like I said, there are people that come and they say, Neil, we want to talk about this. And... I say, yeah, let's talk about it. And but can we explore the links? Can we explore nuance? And so my vision for the future and my story is definitely one where not just everyone's appreciated and show up as their authentic selves, but they win doing that. Because people show up as themselves every day and no one cares. But I want to be a part of this line, this legacy of, of Black environmentalists, Black content creators, Black conservationists, black people in media that make a difference. And I do it without selling out. I do it by being myself. I do it by taking my community with me. Uh, what's funny is that when I went to COP, um, my grandmother, who thankfully is still with us, both my grandparents on my mother's side are still with us. 
my grandmother said that and she, she said that she was so proud of me because I was going out and doing things that she never in her lifetime imagined doing herself. When I went for a sale for climate action, my grandmother, I remember her and my mother, both being very emotional and crying because I was going to be gone for four months and I would be at sea and I would be in the UK and I would be in, in Europe and they didn't know what that was like. And I pretty much had to tell them it would be okay. I'd never been either, but you know, I, I had to let them know that it was going to be okay because I can't shy away from the work and the issues for, um, for the sake of my conditioned comfort. And I said conditioned comfort because these are only things that I've been told to be okay with. These aren't actually the things I'm okay with. And so um, my position in this fight at every intersection, it absolutely matters to me to exist wholly, to exist authentically, and to also exist with the people, for the people, by the people. Amen. Oh, power to the people. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Neil, if, 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 I want to make sure to tell you happy Pride and happy Pride Month to you and happy Pride Month to everybody who is celebrating, you know, uh, during, during this month. And, and, and for folks who want to support you, want to follow you, want to contact you, how can they do that? So I can be re- reached on Instagram at NatureBoyNeil. That's Nature Boy N I E L. That's my main Instagram. I also work with the Bad Activist Collective, uh, which is our handle, Bad Activist Collective on Instagram. And we are a collective of organizers, change makers, activists, advocates, writers, creatives who are working to dismantle systems of oppression and also to debunk this idea that perfectionism has any place in any movement. We don't need anyone to be perfect. We need you to get into the work at the ground level from where you are, bring your, bring your imperfections, bring your expertise, bring things that you're passionate about. So of course, Nature Boy Neil and the Bad Activist Collective on Instagram. Mm. Thank you so much, Neil. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, Rob. And that's our guest today, Neil Leiden. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host, of the coolest show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.